Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. It's to prove it. Um, every, every Sunday would dress all of us alike. You know, it was very sound, sound, of, sound of music. And used to cart us, uh, all of us to church. And uh, my brother and I were altar boys. We must have been like six, seven, eight, and he was like a year or two younger. And we got to wear these fabulous red robes and white lace overlay and... Um, of course, you know, I remember having, you know, those days when there was real danger, um, and we had a TV, but there was nothing worth watching. Uh, so we, we grew up reading, for which I'm really grateful, um, very grateful for that experience of having uh, been brought up reading and having developed a lifelong love affair with books. Um, but as a consequence of that, my earliest heroes, besides Tarzan, were the, the Christian saints, which were the, most of the books that were lying around my house that my parents kept for us. So to me, I brought up believing that that was like the highest expression that a human being could aspire to. And so I remember being like, you know, seven, eight years old and sitting up at this huge cathedral, this altar, completely oblivious, of course, to what was going on in the service, but looking down at the congregation and, and having this fantasy that the communists were uh, going to tear the doors down and they were going to try to desecrate the, the host, to desecrate the Eucharist. And then I would very heroically hurl my body in front of them and, and be riddled by bullets and become a martyr. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, thankfully these days I no longer entertain martyr fantasies. But, you know, I've been asked a lot as I've been traveling across the country uh, the last few months speaking about my book, um, so, you know, when did you become spiritual? And I, I look back and I see that there's always been this thread going through it of, of having a desire to serve the divine as I have viewed it in, at different points in, in my life and as I have understood that in different points of my life. And also to serve humanity and to make a difference in, in this world. Um, when I came to the States at age 10 and I went to an all-boy Jesuit high school in Miami, um, I thought I wanted to be a priest. And looking back on it, I think there were two things going on. I think that one was a real, genuine, again, desire to serve God as I understood the divine then and, and to serve humanity. But I think there was something else going on, too. And I was very uh, sexually active. I would say even promiscuous as a teenager. I probably had, no, delete the probably. I had more partners in terms of numbers before age 18 than I've had since then. Um, my 20s and 30s have been mostly a series of serial monogamy, uh, monogamous relationships. Um, but in any case, um, and I think that I was so conflicted. I mean, I don't know, for those of you who were born in either Catholicism or, or raised in Catholicism or a very fundamentalist religion, uh, for those of you who were not, it's really hard to convey to you the degree of, of self-hatred and guilt. Um, I mean, it's existential guilt, because I thought that I was going to hell for masturbating. I mean, not, not to mention the other unmentionable. Uh, but, you know, I was taught that masturbation was a mortal sin, and if you died without having confessed a mortal sin, uh, you would burn in eternity, and you would burn in hell for all eternity. And one time I was told by a priest that, you know, trying to help me understand what the concept of eternity was, he said, well, imagine going to, to the beach, and you have a thimble, and you start taking the water out of the ocean. Well, that's eternity, and 
terrified me. Um, so, so I was very conflicted. I mean, I was very conflicted um, about my sexuality and my budding homosexuality. And um, I think that was the other thing that was going on. I think to me in those days, I very innocently and very naively believed that priests were celibate. So to me, uh, that was a way to sublimate my sexuality, a way that I didn't have to deal with it. Um, and what I thought was a very honorable and very respectable way to, to handle that. Um, of course, little did I know. Um, well, I actually went as far as to speak to the head of the novitiate, you know, the guy who decided who got into the novitiate, who decided who became a priest, a priest and who didn't. And thankfully he was a wise man who said, well, why don't you do uh, two years of college and, and then we'll talk. I ended up doing two years and transferring to another university uh, from Tulane, from which I graduated. But during those two years, several things happened. Um, and the, by far the most important one was that I fell in love. And for me, it was the experience of, it was as if I'd been eating hamburger, and, and probably hot dog is a much better analogy, all my life. And then suddenly, somebody gave me a filet mignon. And for a vegetarian, it's a very strange metaphor. But it, but it works, you know. It was, suddenly I, I knew, like in, in my soul, in my heart, in my bones, in every one of my cells, that being gay wasn't wrong, and it wasn't a sin, and it wasn't an abomination, and it wasn't a sickness. Um, I also have a psych psych psychiatrist for a father, so I, you know, to me it was, it was very significant. I, it, he comes from a very Freudian uh, perspective in which um, homosexuality is not highly respected, to say the least. But anyway... Um, the other thing that happened, I mean, after that moment, my life was never the same. It's like I knew. And, after, and since that moment, there wasn't a priest, or there wasn't a psychiatrist, or there wasn't a rabbi, or a minister, or an imam, or a bishop, or even a pope in this world that could tell me otherwise, that could tell me that, that being, being gay was so beautiful. My experience of it was that it was so beautiful that it, there's no way that it could have been wrong. The other thing that happened was that I took a class in existentialism in college, and that began a process, a really painful process, of, of deconstructing my, my Catholic worldview and beginning to develop a, a different way of, of relating with reality and interpreting reality. And that was quite painful for a few months. It was, it was almost as if I had yanked a, a rug from underneath my own feet, and, and the foundation on which I stood and on which I interpreted, or through which... I interpreted life and, re and the world and reality certainly wasn't there. So I was in a, in a vacuum for several months, which was kind of a, a long depression as well. But of course I came out of it, and I think stronger and, and more honest as a person because of going through that process. Uh, the third thing that happened was that I also started a phase of uh, experimentation with hallucinogenics, which also kind of like blew my mind and expanded my, my perceptions of reality. And the three things combined were a very powerful melange, which, uh, after which the Jesuits never stood a chance. <laughs> um, so that catalyzed a, a, some years in my 20s where I was really angry with the church. And I was really angry with religion. And I was really angry with God as I understood it then. And I thought that if there was a personal God that interfered in, or that intervened in, in human affairs, how could, how could it possibly allow it? allow such needless pain and needless suffering, not only in my own case, um, but also in the case of the countless millions of people, gay or straight, who have gone to their death feeling less than or feeling like they failed or they missed the mark or, or they were wrong or they were sick 
because of mistaken and misinterpreted uh, teachings, and uh, teachings that were taken out of their cultural and historical context. And I was incensed. I was enraged. I couldn't accept that. So, like many of us, I threw the baby out with uh, the baptismal water in my 20s, and I chucked the whole thing. I wanted nothing to do with anything that even smacked of religion or spirituality. And most of my 20s were that. As I turned, you know, my, as I approached my late 20s, particularly at age 29, um, I began a process of of exploring what what else. And I was at this point, I was living in South Beach, and I was had a pretty pretty comfortable job, making good money, and I had a beautiful lover and a condo on the water and a sports car and the Armani suits and all, and you know all of that. I was sought after socially and professionally. Yet the more that I had the more that it seemed there, there was something missing. And so the more the sense was that I, I, there had to be more to life. So I began this process of exploring um, Eastern religions and some of the mystical Western traditions and Native American stuff and um, connected with a teacher that, uh, through which I, I learned meditation and I learned uh, breath work. And um, to make a long story short, I... I went off on the spiritual journey right as I turned 30. I quit my job and sold my condo and my car and gave away most of my belongings, except for my Armani suits and my books. <laughs> and I went off with her for about five years and traveled a lot of the country and ended up relocating here to the Bay Area, where I've been since 91. At some point it became, and this was sort of like an ashramic um, type setting, you know, guru-disciple type relationship. Um, so living in spiritual community for, for, for about five years. Mostly celibate. Not completely, but mostly. Um, I came out of that when it became necessary for me to move beyond that the, the intrinsically hierarchical relation, nature of the relationship had actually begun to interfere with my spiritual process. So at some point I was able to extricate myself from that relationship and that organization um, and went off on my own. And then I still had this, you know, this desire to do something, to make, to, had to do something, to, had to make a difference in this world. And that's when I found it about four years ago, that's when I founded Q Spirit, which is a non-profit organization based here, although our, mem our membership is increasingly uh, national and international. And it's just a, an organization promoting personal growth and, and spiritual development in the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community, or GLBT for short. Um, and for the last four years, we've had a, a, a lot of different activities. We've had some really uh, exciting um, lecture series, like one exploring the world's spiritual traditions through queer eyes, in, in which we had uh, panels of gay and lesbian um, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians of all different types of denominations, earth-based religions, uh, Sufis, uh, New Thought religions, etc. And it was really quite an amazing thing to, to week after week, see panel of, of, of our people, you know, dressed fully in their, in their, in their religious drag and um, fully embodying these, these roles of, of spiritual leadership. It was really quite an amazing thing. Um, earlier this year, because of my schedule uh, promoting the book and, and um, also because we chose to really begin to focus all our resources and our, and our energies and, and attention on these programs, so these new events that we're calling techno rituals, which are kind of cutting edge, drug and alcohol free uh, spiritual raves. We had the, the first one in San Francisco, in uh, South of Market actually, in June, and it was an official gay pride event. 
And it was really quite an amazing thing. Some of you may have been there. Um, basically, they're like three, four-hour events involving drumming and chanting and music and guided processes and meditative processes and interactive processes um, and multimedia kind of presentation. And, of course, you have the high-tech sound and, and lights for, for being in a nightclub environment. And it was really an amazing experience. We, people were in tears, so they were so deeply moved because a lot of the processes that we were that we brought into into being were had to do with helping us heal our the split between our sexuality and our spirituality, and also to help us um, kind of reclaim the body as 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 a way to to worship as a way to reach the divine, um, which as you know in many traditions uh, it's a very sexuality and the body is a very valid way to a very valid vehicle to the divine um, I think that that it's really important that we as a community and as individuals reclaim our spiritual heritage um, and that we do this kind of coming out spiritual sharing with each other. Um, I don't have to tell you that there's so many people in our community that absolutely want nothing. They don't even want to hear anything that, that smacks of religion or spirituality. It's very understandable uh, given the way that we've, re given the retreatment, uh, the treatment that we've received at the hands of most religions in the world. Uh, so it's very understandable, yet very tragic, given that there's so much evidence that historically and across many cultures uh, we've been not only spiritually inclined, but have actually, in many cases, been honored um, and even revered for the roles of spiritual leadership that we have played. And that's part of what I tried to do in the first part of the book, is synthesize, combine, in some cases name, some of these, I'm calling them spiritual archetypes. And I'll just mention a few. Um, Scouts of consciousness. Um, you know, the function of, of a scout in a, tr in a tribe is he or she who goes ahead of the tribe to see what lies beyond the river or, on, or on the, around the mountain and then comes back and reports to the rest of the tribe what they found. But the, it's a role that we've always played um, and continue to play. Um, you know, for example, who's, who's always setting trends in fashion and, and music and the arts and who's discovering the brand new restaurants and the best new play in town. And that neighborhood that's just about to experience a renaissance and property values are going to go way, way high. It's, it's usually us. We're usually at, at the vanguard. Um, and in terms of, of consciousness, I, I'm very blessed, very fortunate that I travel a lot and I see, I, I meet a lot of people that to me are at the cutting edge of, of consciousness. People that are in many ways pushing out the, the boundaries of the human spirit and really exploring what our purpose is at this particular time. And I have to tell you that we're out there um, in numbers that are out of proportion with our overall population. Not all of us out, necessarily, uh, but I think increasingly so. Um, we're also keepers of beauty, um, creators of beauty and keepers of beauty, and those who maintain beauty in this planet in many ways. Um, one of the things I did in the book is compile a list of, of artists, and these are significant um, artists, um, who have, you know, if they live today, would probably identify as gay or, or bisexual or, or lesbian or whatever. Um, and it's really an incredibly impressive list. Um, and, and even a more recent example of that is uh, when they announced the Pulitzer's prices this year, several months ago, four of them went to openly gay or lesbian people. Very significant and very historical event. Uh, of course, we've won them in the past. Uh, but usually from a place of hiding, a place of fear, uh, a place of repression. This year, four of them uh, went to openly gay or lesbian people. Another one would be the, um, the healer or the caregiver archetype. 
Um, and we, we know we're to be fun in, in all aspects of the service industry, whether it's waiting on, on tables or flight attendants or innkeepers or in positions where we're taking care of other people. And in terms of healers, uh, we're, from, we're doctors and we're nurses and we're all body workers and massage therapists and alternative healers of every imaginable uh, persuasion. Um, we're also mediators, you know, those who, be, in many indigenous cultures, we were thought to contain um, elements of both male and female within each one of us. And because of that, we were ideal mediators between the genders between, and also between the physical and the spiritual realm. Uh, so, for example, say that the two of you wanted to get married in a, in a Native American tradition. It would be really important that you obtain the blessing of the two-spirit person of the Bradash of the tribe. And so the way that it would happen is that, first of all, the two of you would go and, and pay... I mean, no, first of all, your family would go and, and pay a very social, very indirect visit to uh, this individual. And on the way out, you know, leave a present by the door. Nothing really was addressed directly. Um, a few days, a week would pass, and then the two of you would go. And again, pay a very social, uh, very indirect, uh, informal visit to this individual. Nothing was addressed directly, but on the way out, you leave a present by the door. So what happened was that these individuals that were in many cases right up there in status with the chiefs and the shamans, and in many cases we were also the shamans, um, but they were often they, they were wealthier than the chiefs and the shamans because of all the presents that they were left at the doorstep. Um, I think that it's really, these are just a few of, of the archetypes, and by no, mean, by no means am I saying that that the ten that I came up with are the only ten, or that we have an exclusive on them. Of course, non-gay people have fulfilled those roles as well. I just feel that these are roles that um, that we have had a, a particular propensity to uh, throughout history and seem to have as well these days. Um, I think it's really important that we reclaim these roles today and find ways of expressing them that are right and appropriate and a match for who we are. Um, I think that as we do that, three things will happen. On a personal level, we'll find fulfillment. Um, as far as I'm concerned, we're all spiritual beings. We're all spirits who happen to be having uh, a physical experience, or as Sting would say, we're spirits in the material world. Um, but as such, and at that level, it doesn't matter to me, I don't think. I mean, I know that it doesn't matter at, at the spiritual level what you have between your legs or, or how you use it. Uh, so to me, it's, it's just as impossible to find any type, any level of fulfillment or any sense of real well-being as a human being, um, as long as we keep trying to reject entire parts of who we are. And, and I know that in some ways I'm preaching to the choir here, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, but it's just as impossible by, by trying to repress our sexuality, which I know many of us in here tried to do, I know I did, um, and there's so many of us who are still trying to repress or ignore or suppress our spirituality. So that's one, personal fulfillment. Uh, the second would be um, on a community level, and this one isn't always a positive or, or it's kind of controversial at times to, to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I think that as we reclaim these roles and reclaim our spiritual heritage, uh, that we'll see a decline in what to me um, are self-destructive or... Um, less than life-affirming behaviors that are still uh, present in our community. The fact that the rate of addictions in our community is, according to some studies, as, as high as ten times um, as the rate of addictions in the straight community, we need to look at that. 
The fact that the rate of suicide among our youth is anywhere from three to seven times, depending on who you speak with, um, as high as their straight counterparts. We need to do something about that. The fact that the that at this stage of the game there are men and young men seroconverting, uh, becoming HIV positive on a daily basis, we need to do something about that. We need to look at that. It goes without saying these are complex issues, um, and and I, th I think that at least one of the causes is the uh, internalized homophobia and the internalized self-hatred uh, that many of us walk around with, not even aware of the effect that it's having on our behavior. But I think it's also because we keep trying to reject entire parts of who we are as, as human beings. Um, finally, I think the third thing that will happen is that as we reclaim these roles, the ripple effects of it will be felt throughout the world. Uh, because we've been, the world's been running off, off balance, off kilter, uh, because we've been fired from our jobs or, or have been fulfilling them from a place of, of fear, a place of hiding. Uh, there's a man from the Dagora tribe in Africa. His name is Maladoma Somme. You, some of you may know him. Um, but he writes about the gatekeepers. In the Dagora tradition, um, their worldview is that the world is like a, a pattern of, of a matrix of energy that has certain gates or certain openings into other realms. And in their philosophy, only people that are in the West called gay or lesbian are constitutionally and intrinsically able of assuming the role of a gatekeeper, of being guardians to these gates, to these other worlds. And, um, for example, there's um, he and his wife, Sabonfu, do a weekend seminar or retreat on, on grieving. And I, was, I interviewed a couple of people for, that, were, that took part of that. I interviewed them for the book. And part of, part of the weekend, the, well, the weekend culminated in this final several hours long ritual in which they had kind of drawn with ash a, a huge egg on uh, on you know on the grass and so at the bottom part of the egg the you know the, the heavier part of it there was a bonfire and that represented the tribe and they were all around that drumming at the very tip of the egg there was a line also cutting across which represented the next world and at some point whenever the drumming got high enough and people were moved to get up individually they would get up and go to this line and and bid goodbye to their to their ancestors. Many people were actually so entranced that they would actually try to hurl themselves over the line. And the job of the gatekeepers in that case, which were two gay men and two lesbians that alternated uh, between each other, were to actually physically restrain people from going over to the other side because in their belief, if you did that even there, it would be spiritually and even physically dangerous to do that. So that's one of the present-day applications of that. I think I'll, I'll stop here now, maybe take some questions, and... Clint. Great. Sure. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, it was quite an amazing experience to be there. It was intense. It was not a pleasant experience to be there. Um, I don't know, maybe I'll just back up a little bit for those of you who may not know that there's, this has been in the works for several months. Mel White, who is uh, uh, an MCC minister, a uh, former ghostwriter for Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Jim and Tammy Baker and others, um, and who did a lot of their, and actually ghostwrote Jerry Falwell's biography or autobiography, uh, several years ago came out as a gay man and uh, wrote his own book called Stranger at the Gate and 
for for years now he's been trying to get Jerry to sit down at the table with him and just have a conversation and Fowl has been completely closed and opposed to it. Finally this year he agreed to do it and the way that it worked was that Mel White brought 200 of us with him, um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people and some heterosexual allies and then Fowl had 200 of, of his people there and it was... <laughs> It was pretty intense. I mean, because because we were being then, of course, there were the protesters. We had protesters from um, what's like crazy man Phelps and and Atwell, who were like you know just the typical signs that we've all seen in, in before, you know, Mets and hell and um, God hates fags and all the typical signs that were they're kind of old and tired. You even look at them and they're kind of old looking. But they had some new ones which were kind of interesting. They had a, a blow up of Jerry Falwell's face with a pink triangle here and it said Judas Falwell. Uh, <laughs> um, and, but that, and then there was supposedly a, a gay group from or a gay individual from Miami, Florida, uh, Bob Kunst, who was actually involved very actively in the anti-Anita Bryant movement 20 years ago. But he was very adamantly opposed to us sitting down with the, you know, with the enemy. Um, we spent one day, the 200 of us spent one day in training, in, in doing training in nonviolence. Uh, Mel White has created an organization called Soul Force, which is based on the principles of nonviolence uh, used by Gandhi and Martin Luther King and going all the way back to, to Jesus. Uh, but I think Sulfur is a, is a direct translation of, of a Hindu word uh, that Gandhi came up with. Um, so we spent a whole day training in nonviolence, which was kind of intense. I, uh, you know, I tell my friends that I thought I went there with some fear of what might happen to me physically, and that I didn't, that wasn't beat up except by a Buddhist dyke. Uh, and and the way that that happened was that she was a, actually she's a friend. Uh, she's a Buddhist Quaker. Interesting combination, but she was the one that was doing training and nonviolence. So she asked me, "Hey, do you wanna do you wanna get up here with me and help demonstrate?" And I said, "Sure." I'm just sitting there, kind of spacing out, completely oblivious, and suddenly she starts shoving me and pu and pulling me and slapping me. It's like, "Whoa!" So she kind of uh, roughed me up a little bit, um, but I guess it was for a good cause. Um, the, the following day, we had a, an actual forum where the 200 of us were originally going to have dinner with their 200, and the media was not invited to them. The whole thing was a media circus. I mean, anywhere from Time, Newsweek, CNN, you name them, they were there. The New York Times, they were all there. It was quite intense in that way as well. Um, they got so much pressure, Fowl got so much pressure from Focus on the Family, from Dobson, and, and a lot of his own supporters about how could he even consider thinking at the, and having dinner. Apparently there's some kind of biblical prohibition or you can't eat with the enemy or something with a sinner. So he was, they got so much flack for that that they had to, at some point, they had to back out and say, no, we can't have dinner, but you can still come. And so instead we just got water. Um, but... You know, but I have to say too that it's really it was the whole thing was interesting and in that it was very organic. You know, at, at several points it could the negotiations could have stopped and the meeting would have called been called off. It was very much in the moment and very, it, we were all navigating uncharted waters. I mean, this is the first time that anybody from the Christian right has extended an invitation to a group of gay and lesbian folk and to, for him to actually even use the word gay and lesbian instead of homosexual perverts. I mean, that in itself was quite an accomplishment. Um, I came out of there, so we had the meeting with the 200 people, with the 400, 
And then there was a press conference at which Fowell and Mel White and two people from, from each side were interviewed. And then the following day on Sunday, we actually went to church. We went to Thomas Road Baptist Church, which I was very surreal being in Jerry Fowell's church in a Baptist service that I'd never been to with, you know, with armed guards all around. Um, and this is a huge church, octagonal shape that probably holds about 7,000 people. Packed to the girls' standing room only. And again, guards, you know, like every 20 feet. It was pretty, pretty surreal. Um, but I came out of there feeling with mixed feelings, if, if, but predominantly feeling hopeful. Um, I think that if Fowell had done nothing else but to say publicly on, on two occasions on national television that weekend, he said he apologized for the uh, language that he's used to describe gay and lesbian people in the past. And he said that he has characterized us based on 5% of our, quote, uh, cooks and crazies, unquote. Um, I mean, if he had done nothing else but say that, that would be an incredible accomplishment. He also said that he, he also promised that he would put systems in place to monitor the type of language that came out of his organization, including his newsletters, his books, etc. Um, he also said, which I think is pretty significant, um, he addressed parents, and particularly gay, uh, Christian parents, which are the ones that listen to him. But he specifically told them to love um, their gay and lesbian children. And again, if he said nothing else but that, I think that would change li- that would save many lives. He was asked by the press at some point what he would do if his son came out to him as gay. And he said, you know, I would pray ceaselessly for him to abandon the lifestyle. Uh, but I would tell him, I would not withhold my love or my, any of my resources from him. And I would tell him, you can just stay here in your own bedroom and I will al- always love you, you will, al- you will always be my son. Um, so to me, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful message uh, for Christian parents. And he said several times, you know, don't, don't kick your kids out of your house. Um, he also said that, I mean, there was, there was definitely mixed messages, because we, we got lumped into the same category with um, other sinners, like um, unwed mothers and alcoholics and, and drug addicts and child molesters even at one point. And since we were all practicing, this was during the, conf- during the press conference at which we were kind of ambushed, because um, Michael Johnston, which is their kind of like golden ex-gay poster boy at this point, um, was not scheduled to be at the press conference, and suddenly there he was. And so, but it was too late, you know, he was already up there. And even though Fowell used some of that same language and compared us to other types of sinners, it really wasn't, you, that was, he wasn't dripping hatred, as he was saying. And you could tell, to me, you could tell the guy actually believes that, um, and that he's sincere about his belief in, in that and in wanting to save us, whether, you know, regardless of, of, of the accuracy or, or the truth of that. But when Michael Johnston um, spoke, he was so angry and so filled with hate um, that many of us, I mean, I was sitting in a, we were sitting like tables of ten, and there were like four of us, and and my table was eight, so there were four of us and four of them. And um, there was a lesbian in my table who was literally in tears because we had been a part of our training in nonviolence. It's like you just sit there. You you don't get up and you, or start screaming or interrupt them or, or walk out of the thing. You just sit there. And she was so frustrated that she literally had tears coming down her face because we were being slammed by this guy. And finally, 
Um, and you could tell that Mel White, who had been, you know, like walking such a tightrope all week and trying to keep the thing going and from falling apart, his shoulders were kind of, you know, drooping and he didn't know how to respond and say the truth without blowing off the, the whole rest of the weekend. So suddenly Jimmy Creech, who's a Methodist minister some of you probably know about, who was defrocked last year by the, by the Methodist Church for conducting a same-sex union, um, and who's got another trial coming up in, in, in couple, another church trial coming up in a couple of weeks in Nebraska. But anyways, he just suddenly stopped and said, you know, I really am feeling very uncomfortable with this and with the language of the last 15 minutes. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're committing, we're, we're, t we're talking here about toning down the rhetoric so that the violence doesn't occur. But what's been happening here is spiritual violence. And so he kind of coined that term, and a term that's been used a lot in the media since then. Um, and then it was, all, it was almost like if everybody took, all of us took a collective breath. It was like, thank you, Jimmy, for saying that. Um, the, you know, one, I was, one of the things that I said, I think it was the examiner that interviewed me before I left, and they said, well, why are you going? Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm, ho I'm going with the hope that by getting together, the f you know, by getting all of us together, that we'll be able to hopefully move and see beyond the labels and see underneath the labels that keep us separate, labels such as faggots and sodomites and abominations and bigots and fundamental Christian radicals, um, and realize that underneath all those labels we all share a common humanity. And that as human beings we all basically want the same things. We want to love and we want to be loved and we want to have families and friends and jobs that have a sense of, of purpose and, and lives that have a sense of meaning. Um, and, but, you know, but I say these great words and I was really thinking about them. Um, but I have to say that my experience was that I, I sat actually in the forum I sat, I wasn't less than 10 feet away from, from Jerry Fowell. And I could see his eyes. I could really look into his eyes. And I have to say that I saw the man's humanity. And I saw the man's compassion. And there was one particular incident where, um, in, in that particular forum, he, ha he had already spoken for 30 minutes and sat down. And then we had 30 minutes. So uh, Mel White spoke for 20, and then he had about three people that each spoke about two to three minutes. One of those was a mother, a straight mother, who was doing this for the first time. And she shared her story about uh, how, as a fundamentalist, um, when, her les when her daughter came out to her as a lesbian, she was completely uh, judgmental and very condemning. And day after day was you know, just giving her all this condemning language and I will never accept, that's like the one and only thing that I would never accept from you. And until finally the daughter had enough and said, look, don't call me anymore, I don't wanna, I don't wanna hear from you. And completely severed all relationship. Um, about a couple of weeks later, the mother had this, this feeling to just get in her car and drive to the daughters and say, look, I don't care what you are. You're my daughter, and I love you. But she couldn't get past herself. She couldn't get through herself to do that and didn't do it. A couple of months passed, and sure enough, she got a call. The daughter had been found hanging from her own closet, and she'd taken her own life. And you could see this mother was in tears. You could feel her pain. You could feel her guilt. And it was really, really very profoundly touching. And I, could, I was watching Fall while she was speaking, and I could see that he was affected by it. And he actually got up and went back to the podium and he just looked at the woman and he said, I just hope that one day you can forgive yourself. And the media wasn't there for this part of it, so he wasn't grandstanding for the media. I felt that he was being sincere, and I felt that he was actually moved by this woman's story. As I don't, I don't think that it's it would have been possible not to have been moved by her story. Um, so anyway, that gives you...
you, how, how was it being, how, what, what effect you, did you think this might have had, or how did you, with the, with the Christians that you were at the table with, that you interacted with? That's a great question. How yeah. That's a great question. We, in my table, we had apparently we found out later that they had he had had that Fowell had had a hard time finding two hundred Christians to sit with us. <laughs> so they had to place a last minute um, kind of clarion call to their Liberty University, which is right next door to the church, and so they invited a whole bunch of seniors, the college seniors, and so my table was four of us and four seniors, and and actually it was they were great, they were really nice, they were really clean cut, <laughs> which, you know, very uh, Liberty University. And, but they were actually, I think they were even open-minded. I mean, they, we had um, some very interesting, we took them, the four of us took the four of them out to lunch the following day after church. And we paid for their lunch. And, I mean, and we, and we really had a really nice, very open conversation uh, with them. Um, and had an opportunity to, to I, I would say, debunk, you know, some of the myths, like about being pederasts. And about you know a gay agenda, I said to them, "It's like you know, you think you have, you think we, you talk, you guys talk about having a gay agenda. I mean, we can't even agree on what to call ourselves. You know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, etc. It's like, what kind of agenda could we possibly have? I said, if there's anything, any common goal that we share is, is we don't want to be, we don't want to fear for our lives or for our health or for our well-being because of being who we are. We don't want to lose our jobs or our apartments or our families because of who we are, because of how we love and and whom we love." Um, oh, this is kind of funny. When when I first sat down at the table, the we we're kind of like partner. The, the partner, my partner, was a uh, Josh, which is one of the seniors, and you could tell he was so nervous. He was so scared. And one of one of the one of our delegation was a woman from Maui who had come. They had actually come with two hundred lace of tea leaves, not the leaf ones, not the flower ones, and we were to give it to them. So I so I just took a chance and I took mine off and I put it over his neck and I said, here, now you can say that you've been laid by a gay man. <laughs> and he just, he started cracking. I mean, I could have gone either way, but he, <laughs> fortunately he laughed and it kind of broke the ice. And, and then, we, well, then we had a great conversation after that.
So I'm wondering, you know, the tools that allow us to be present I, mean, I think it's a great question, and as you know, as probably you've read in the gay media, there's a lot of controversy around this meeting. There's a lot of people who don't don't think time to sit down with Powell and, and his kind. Um, I know that I, I can I can I don't know this for a fact, but I have a real strong feeling that those 200 people will never be the same because they have a name, they have a humanity behind you know the label, and, and they see that we're not demons. Uh, we actually, you know, we're laughing and bantering and. You know, I don't think they can possibly be the same. Um, I know, I know what you're saying. I, mean, I don't expect to be friends with them. I don't expect for Jerry Fowell to to recant and say homosexuality is not a sin. I'm not a Pollyanna, you know, optimist in that sense. But um, I think the change is going to be slow. I remember how long it took me to move through my own self hatred and my own confusion and my own. And for me, it was for me it was a matter of survival. You know, I was either going to do that and find a way to, to reconcile myself, or I was going to take my own life. The only reason I didn't take my life as, as a teenager was because that was a bigger sin. Um, and it took me years to work throughout. And so how can it not take them also time to work through all this stuff and all these misconceptions? At the same time, I feel that, that it's also, we might experience some critical mass effect, you know, sort of like the hundredth monkey effect, that if it starts happening and more people start... I mean, the world that we live in today is not the same one that, that, we, that I grew up in, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so I think, you know, we might be surprised. We might be surprised. Yeah. I, I heard Mel Hyde interview him. I think it was KPFA a day or two ago. What touched me so deeply was his motivation in going to these people. He had worked so long after he had been kicked out of that group of people changed their mind and he essentially he said he was going to give up and then he remembered that one of Gandhi's admonitions was that giving up is an act of violence yeah that's a good point and they asked him whether to do any good or not he says I really don't know but can't do any harm and it didn't mean good that's a good point it was actually it was Coretta King's assistant was the one who who taught him that. Yeah, because he had he was saying, "That's it, I'm not going to try anymore." And the assistant said, "Well, you can't give up on your enemy if you really if you really are walking your talk and practicing principles of nonviolence." It's what it's exactly what you said. Does he plan? Do you think to if they don't, you know, do anything to like seriously dish them? <laughs> Well, dishing probably would not be the the nonviolent approach. Um, probably the the way the, the way nonviolence works is you you your goal is to get them to negotiate to the negotiating table, and even and then if that doesn't happen, then you take a direct action, like some kind of civil disobedient, you know, kind of action. But even then, the goal is to get them to come to the table and negotiate. Um, I know that the next action that Soul Force is taking, which I'll probably be a part of if I can swing it, um, you know, in terms of time and finance, finances, is is going to Jimmy Creech's trial in Nebraska and having a show of support there, and maybe even um, you know risking arrest if trying to prevent the trial from taking place. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been he's been um, archiving all the language 
that's been coming out of their organization for years. In fact, that's what prompted Jerry Fowell to say this on, on the Today Show. Well, maybe it was Good Morning America. Good Morning America was uh, with Diane Sawyer because she, she had all the preparation. And so she read a letter, and she read, you know, this really anti-virulent, you know, anti-gay statement. And Jerry said, uh, well, no, that's, that's you're, you're looking at a really old letter. I don't say that anymore. And then she said, because she had been prepared by Mel White, says, no, I got this off your website this morning. Mm-hmm. So it was still on there. So he, you know, he was kind of caught. <laughs> it's somewhat disturbing to me that I'm sitting here feeling disturbed in my foot here. To hear just the words Jerry Falwell's humanity, sorry, it doesn't sit. I understand. One of those 12 people you can't hear? Um, well, maybe 40. <laughs> because nonviolence is a political method. Um, and Falwell is not a spiritual person to me, nor is his church. It is a political and economic institution. My question is, what is queer spirit in your definition? What is queer spirit the um, religious and political liberation of queer people? Or is it a queer, what is the spirit of queer spirit? My second question actually is, what is, if I mean, you don't have to answer this, what is your practice, um, mm-hmm. Christian? Well, let me let me try, let me go back to the first thing you said. Um, I think that the nonviolence has a very very profound spiritual component to it. It's not only a political thing, and if you look at even the civil rights movement here, it came out of the churches. It's a profoundly, um, and if you look at the vows that Martin Luther King said, the first one had to do with Jesus. You you know you'll meditate on the teachings of Jesus every day, and Gandhi was a profound spiritual person. So I would take exception with that. I think it is a political thing, but its 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 basis is definitely spiritual. Um, what was the second question? Well, was the, well, the, the second question actually was, was what, what queer spirit means to you. Um, you know, I have I have I have mixed feelings about that. I, I mean, to me, because I have I look at it kind of like two headed. I think ultimately. In the ultimate sense, I was saying earlier, at the level of spirit, we're all the same. And it doesn't matter what you got between your legs or how you use it. And I also believe that we use certain part of our reality, of, of our physical um, makeup, to reach our spiritual fulfillment and to reach uh, spiritual evolution and to, and to reach towards the divine. So in that sense, who we are as, as queer people is definitely an intrinsic part of our spiritual approach. Um, does that answer your question? So what, what, what's the ultimate goal of that? I think, to me, the ultimate goal of everything is spiritual liberation, not just political. Um, I, think, I think we've, you know, like, politically, we've, we've made great advances as a community in the last 30 years. That the president and the vice president of the United States address openly gay groups is unheard of, or would have been some years ago. Or that the U.S. Supreme Court turns back, turn back Amendment 2 is unheard of. Pretty significant accomplishments. And I feel that that's only 
part of the process. I feel that that's why I write the book, Coming Out Spiritually, The Next Step. I feel that we've neglected um, our personal growth, our emotional growth, and our spiritual growth. And I think it's really time that we begin to focus on that for the ultimate liberation, which I think is spiritual liberation. Um, and then the last question in terms of my own spiritual practice, um, it's very eclectic. Um, I don't belong to any organized religion or any group. I, my meditation is vipassana or you know vipassana-ish because I've never had formal training, but you know I know people who have. Um, I love I love the passion of Sufi of chanting Hindu and Sufi chanting. I love um, the passion of some of, some of the Christian mystics. I think Jesus is okay. Um, and, and you know, I kind of envy. I had a moment when I was writing for the book, and I was up in a retreat um, in Sonoma for a couple of years for for a year. Um, and I had a moment where I was actually brought to tears with compassion for this being, Jesus, whatever he was, um, because of everything that's been done in his name that he would have absolutely nothing to do with and continues to be done in his name. Um, and it's like, how revolting, what a travesty. Uh, because if you could really synthesize everything that that man stood for and everything that he, that he spoke into one word, it would be love. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And didn't say whom to love, he just said love. Or how to love, he just said love. Um, so, you know, like, I think he was great. I think he was an incredible teacher. Um, and I don't consider myself a Christian. Um, I also love the philosophy and some of the practices of, of the indigenous cultures. Um, I love the, you know, the, the, the belief that they don't have the schism that we have in the West between the physical and the spiritual. It, it's all the same, and everything is sacred, including the body and including sexuality. Um, so this is what I what I communing with nature is a very important part of my practice. Um, I live right by the by the cliff house, and you know there's incredible hikes around there uh, with cliffs and the Pacific and the Golden Gate. And if I'm having, you know, if I'm off center, I go to my I do one or two things. I either rebirth myself or I go on a hike, and and it always moves me into gratitude. Gratitude for being for living here in this particular part of the world, and then that kind of generalizes to to generalize gratitude for my life and for for everything, and then it puts everything into perspective. Um, and that's why I think you know that I have a section in the book that says that cultivating a gratitude attitude is a spiritual practice, consciously, consciously um, listing the things that that we're grateful for. I think that in the West, um, when so many of us have the you know, depression, and, and we go into these existential depressions that is such a privilege and such a luxury that the majority of the people in this world don't have. You know, the majority of the people in this world are at survival level. They don't have time to think about whether their lives are working or not. They're just worried about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep. Um, so I think we need to consciously remember, remember that um, and be grateful for everything that we have and everything that we are and the amazing opportunities that we have in this what in the West now where we can, you know, be here doing, you know, talking about, you know, Buddhist principles or we can, you know, we can go to a bookstore and there's like all the mystery teachings are there available for us from all the different religions and all the different traditions. They're right there. We're living in very exciting times. Um, and we need to to me it's it's a great privilege and there's a responsibility that comes with that as well. Um, 
actually at our time boundary, so if you just take this out of the Yeah. So, uh, is there any last thing you'd like to say to something? I guess I just wanted to thank you again. Uh, to me, it's very touching to see a group of, of gay men in, in Sangha and community and following your, your spiritual path. So thank you for, for having me today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I could take a few minutes uh, to hear the announcements briefly since we're over time. Announcements, yeah. Okay. I put some brochures out for the announcement for the second Queer Dharma event. And there are these green flyers. It's going to be Saturday, November 20, 20th, 1 to 5 p.m. in the Berkeley Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists. Uh, and for those of you who think far in advance, the one after that's also been planned for February 19th, which is also Saturday. And that's going to be held at the Zen Center since it's just the Zen Center on Page Street. Great. Thank you. Other announcements? Clint? Uh, we're going to have our, our monthly uh, steering committee meeting this Tuesday. Mark, Marty's at, at your place? That's what I was telling. Oh. <laughs> 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 so, so it's Tuesday evening. It's a chance for people who feel that this is something that they, they derive something worthwhile from to be able to return the flow maybe by helping run behind the scenes. Other announcements? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'd like to remind people that there's a Dharma Bowl out there and your contributions for the support of the fellowship in terms of the rent here and the publications. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, there should be hot water for tea out there. Please take care of your own cups afterwards. There's also a little card there if you want to sign up for the GPF uh, newsletter. Just that you're the host and that you're the people, <laughs> the person to go to with questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. I yes. Have a when is it seven or seven thirty? <laughs> I think it's. Can seven. we say seven thirty on yeah, seven thirty. And I guess the other important an- announcement is that we're going to have a change of format. Um, we're going to be beginning at 10. The, we'll open the hall at 10 for people who wish to meditate a little bit before, and we'll continue to have our half hour sitting together at 10.30, but that happens next week. Is that right? Well, yeah, I don't know, but the, the people who are sitting at 10.30, though, right? There'll be a sitting at 10.30, and the hall will be open at 10 for yeah. people who want to come in a little early. Right. I'm sorry, instead, instead of 9.30, right. So, yes? I'd like to ask a question about that. Is it basically that um, the uh, building will be open, or you know, the section of the building will be open, and people who want to can come in here and sit, but there won't be any organized um, sitting from 10 until 10.30? That's so my understanding. There won't be anybody here who's going to start it or end it or right. anything like that. So for that period of time, it's kind of free form. It's, it's informal. Right? That's my understanding. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else? Um, one answer. Yeah. Um, if, if anyone would like to... Um, volunteer to do tape recording. Um, please talk to me. Just um, you know, be trained on how to do this. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Then I guess the only other thing is that typically there's a group of people who get together for and go to lunch afterwards. So if you kind of want to make yourselves known, that would be good. Anything else? Okay. David, would you please do the dedication of merit?
By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Okay, thank you for coming. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.